Well, you, you've now raised my uh, ire and my blood pressure. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And I want to ask some, some, some tough questions here. Fred, the uh, fallback position usually is um, to err on the side of providing care. And I think most physicians are going to do that. Today we have our guest, uh, Fred Mariachi, who uh, sent us an interesting email a couple of days ago about a situation that's been going on or developing that he feels uh, should be uh, elucidated. And it's right down the the barrel here of Respondent Monthly. Greg is on the line. Greg is in Ann Arbor. Hi, Greg. Hi. Good to see you guys. I, uh, I, 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 I can't admit to it, but there's actually sun here today, <laughs> and it may actually reach like 55 degrees. So I, I don't know what to tell you guys, you know, because the polar bears, I told you, were, were, had arrived yesterday. Yeah, in mass. There was a, yeah, all mass. Bus. I saw yes. the bus. You know, we're unloading them, you know. <laughs> well, we're still around 90 degrees uh, here. It's still unseasonably hot. Um, Fred, you're in Erie, Pennsylvania? Correct. I'm in Erie, Pennsylvania. Is that a, a is that a um, affiliate of one of the big hospital systems in uh, Pittsburgh? We are. Um, we are actually part of the UPMC Health System, um, and we were acquired. I want to say about seven years ago now, um, and essentially we've been part of the UPMC system ever since, and growing, growing like gangbusters. Yeah, I know they were taking over a lot of hospitals uh, in that area uh, for sure, and. Um, the director of their emergency department. You know who the director of the emergency department program is over overall? So, yep. So over the whole system is Don Yealy, and yep. he's the system chair for emergency services, and pretty much everything wraps up under through him. And are you at one one of their out, um, outlying community hospitals? So I oversee UPMC Hammett here in Erie, and then I oversee their northern tier of emergency services. So everything that's going on to New York and what we call the the northern side of I-80 as far as hospital systems. New York. State of New wow. York, yep. Wow, yeah. wow, wow. Yeah. You know, they're not uh, they're not very far from me, actually. They're and, taking uh, over you, yeah, you no, by this the is way. A, this is a very historic area, you know, the Erie Canal and all these sorts of things. I mean, this is a big-time historical stuff, Rick. Be nice now. Uh, Fred, tell us what the uh, what the issue is here. So, uh, as I mentioned to you guys, the biggest issue today is essentially that we, as emergency medicine physicians, have no idea what is happening in certain spaces, or we think we do, and maybe we're not so involved. And I bring up the issue of what's happening today in advanced care planning and end of life care planning to talk specifically about lawsuits that are now coming to emergency department physicians essentially for resuscitating patients and lawsuits for not resuscitating patients based off of what people have documented in paper and and essentially what is happening. You know, years ago, the thought was always, hey, if you were always confused, you save that life because, you know, death is permanent and you could always pull a plug later, right? You can take somebody off a vent, you can shut their pressors off, whatever, and let them die naturally. Well, today we're being sued for that. And not just being sued, we're being successfully sued for wrongful prolongation of life, they call it. But wait, wait a second. I, I want to get the terminology right here because we frequently get sued for a death 
Correct. Or wrongful the, death. Or wrongful death. Wrongful life is a very difficult concept uh, to bring against a doctor because the assumption still, Fred, must be when in doubt, resuscitate. I, I, I mean, if someone comes in on an ambulance, I, I don't mean somebody who's been in the hospital and there's been 20 meetings with about this, but we still have to leave our people with a message here. And uh, don't we have to kind of make sure we're, we're, we're doing uh, in the positive as opposed to the negative? So I, I will push back and say that thought process is being aggressively challenged today. And you know, I don't like it. It's just what is happening. You know, again, I'm with you. If there's ever a doubt, you treat. But when patients have things that are in print now, as far as documentation, as far as advanced directives, as far as these physicians orders for life sustaining treatment, and they have agents that are appointed, you know, today, there is such a push now because we keep people alive. And if yes. you think about it, there's lots of reactivity around us keeping people alive, right? That damn ER doc, you know, they, they, they intubated that patient. They didn't want to be intubated. Their living will says they don't want to be intubated. When none of that stuff is ever that clear in the throes of us taking care of people who are either septic, critically ill or in cardiac arrest, 99% of that stuff is never very, very clear as far as what we're supposed to do. Take for an example of our triad research when we always studied the patient who was in VTAC or VFib in the setting of an MI, you know, and put that person in an age category, say 60, and we interject a living will into that scenario or a pulse in that scenario that's even created correctly. Half the time that patient doesn't get resuscitated, the other half of the time they get resuscitated. Well, somebody's wrong 50% of the time, right? You know, just by sheer numbers, somebody's wrong 50% of the time. And again, now attorneys, you know, just like doctors go to CME programs, attorneys are, are, are actively looking for additional work. And what is happening now is they're figuring out that wrongful prolongation of life. And believe me, it's being supported more and more in a number of the different states now, as far as if you have documents that we're now at risk for those kind of cases, when beforehand we were never at risk for those kind of cases. Fred, if you knew our, our listening group, these are guys who are, we're, we, we are a group of nerds. There's no question about it. And th they're going to go and want to look up some of these cases. So all I can say is if, if you, they don't come right out of your head, each one of us is going to be looking around now to come up with a case of wrongful life, because that's just not the way we think. So you don't have to go looking far. You know, Thaddeus Pope from University of Minnesota Law has an entire page of the cases that he accumulates. And I actually send him cases when they come across my desk. And, and quite frankly, I will tell you, it, it's not the primary care physician or, the, or the, the skilled physician that they're going after. They're coming after the emergency department physician for these. Yeah. That the emergency department physician essentially resuscitated this patient despite their wishes. Not that they sent this person into the ER 10 times with a pulse that says DNR CMO on it, or that they, they you know, had enrolled in hospice and still sent them to the emergency room in a confusing situation. So, again, they, you won't have to go looking far. I mean, these yeah. cases are, are now you know, being tracked and, and published.
Well, you've you've now raised my uh, ire and my blood pressure. Uh-oh, uh-oh. And I want to ask down, some, some, some tough questions here because sure. when somebody is brought into the emergency department, lights and sirens, does that make any difference? I mean, isn't the assumption then someone is wheeled into the emergency department from EMS. You can die at home for free. Can we all agree with that? That for no money at all, you can just die in bed, call the nursing home to come in a couple days and take them away. So who of these people were getting sued on? They got there somehow. Somebody brought them in. I, I, I mean, I hope I'm not asking too well, simplistic a question here. Is this considered like wanton disregard for the will of the patient? Um, that uh, And as such, now look what happened. This person has a life which is really miserable. And had you <laughs> Wait taken... a second. Um, you know, I don't have a life which is miserable too. <laughs> but nobody's suing my wife. I mean, come on. Well, what, what, we break. may... We may find an opportunity to do that, but okay. but but basically, he's talking about uh, the uh, rather instantaneous review of legal documents uh, to uh, to do or not do uh, resuscitation on a patient. Then and why did they call EMS, Rick? That's a they great had to great get point. The, they had to get they had to get there somewhere. So, because like I said. You can die at absolutely no expense at home. You know, I've had dogs do that. I mean, well, you know, I had cats do we that. We all know, Greg, about patients who are in hospice who basically break the rules at the last minute because, right. um, and they come into the emergency department. So, uh, Fred, do you have some cases? Uh, yeah, give us totally. some cases, Fred. Totally. I mean, we, we have cases of patients that, that have come into emergency department settings as well as in different settings and have either been over-resuscitated or under-resuscitated, just depending on what their documents look like. Under-resuscitation obviously results in wrongful death, right? Because right. we didn't take care of that patient. You know, the over-resuscitation results in the wrongful prolongation of life. And I can tell you, I have a number of cases that I'm right now reviewing as an expert witness and essentially creating reports <laughs> for and I, I brought up some of those same exact things you said there, Greg, as far as, look, this was a very confusing situation for this emergency department position. They did not have documentation. They did not have a primary decision maker. They had a pulse form, um, which essentially was not completed appropriately or correctly. And they had family at the bedside basically screaming at her to essentially provide care. So she provided care. And right now, that same family is hanging her out, you know, as far as the decision maker, the agent, because the agent was actually not the one who was asked. Yeah, I've just reached the boiling point here, Fred. If you're in there screaming, save my mother, and they do, you know, th that's a tough situation. Ricky, what it's an you, impossible what situation. It's an impossible situation. What's a doc supposed to do here? Well, you know, this may be another opportunity. Uh, now the uh, police all are wearing body cameras. Uh, now the equivalent may be uh, body cameras on on physicians, or or body cameras 
cameras located in resuscitation areas that uh, help document the uh, resuscitation procedure, whether you, and, and, and I don't know that that is um, all that unreasonable if, um, if it's done carefully. By the way, do all states allow this to take place? Because we're, we, we've got 50, in fact, a few more than that, uh, state jurisdictions uh, where things take place. And some states view things differently than others. I sure. mean, I, I, I'm, I, I'm not aware of such a case right now in Michigan. Now, I know I, I'm not as active in the litigation process as I was a couple of years ago. But I can't remember one of these cases be, being presented at Michigan ASAP. Is it on a state-by-state basis? So there's no doubt that some states are more aggressive. And I could say this with assurance now when you look at the literature and so on. The New Jersey, the state of New Jersey has already essentially took this to the Supreme Court and, and got a what do you call it, an action or a verdict or a ruling saying that if someone has something documented in print and you treat that person despite what's in print, you are liable and you will be held accountable to it. Now, I can tell you this, everything that you see in print is not clear. You know, when you look at a living will, it's not clear. When you look at a Pulse document, it's not clear. And the triad research has showed that pretty aggressively that you know, we, we don't understand what living wills are when they're, when they're to apply. Heck, 80% of the time, physicians misinterpret, misinterpret a living wills that do not resuscitate order, which then results in an inappropriate pulse form being completed with a DNR on it. You right. know, so, you know, we don't know, and we almost never know what the patient's intention is. And in fact, I'll go one step further in this. The, the patient's intentions, everyone tries to say that the patient documented their wishes. No, they didn't. They signed a form. They did right. not document their wishes. Their wishes almost always are that the doctor is going to take care of them when there's a reasonably degree of certainty that they'll be saved and have a quality of life. That That's what 99% of patients agree to when they sign those forms. They don't agree to die tomorrow because they have a form and are critically ill. And that was what could and sometimes happens when you actually create those paper-based documents and so on. And yeah. again, we've shown this in Triad 8. In Triad 8, we looked at paper documents as far as living wills. We looked at the pulse form, it, you know, even if it was created correctly in clinical scenarios. And we showed that the interpretation rates and the care rates were just terrible. And then we were able to inject what we call scripted patient-to-clinician video in there or a video statement by a patient telling us what they actually wanted and then we were able to see concordance to levels that was never, ever shown in, in research or documentation with those documents. You know, right. in a New Jersey, can't you just see this in New Jersey? You could play this out on the Sopranos. Someone comes in and says, hey, you got a nice cousin here. He looks like he's going to die. Now, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? It, it could almost be a comedy routine because you've got multiple family, in case thing, things have changed in the last couple of years, you've got multiple family members there. They may be fighting with each other about what grandpa wanted or, or, or grandma wanted. I mean, I've been in all those situations, and at some point in time, 
you got to make a decision. If you can be sued either way, isn't this kind of a, a preposterous situation well, Fred, for the well, doctor? Fred, also, what, what is this triad pro project that you're referring to? And is it something that could be used to defend the, uh, the behavior of physicians? Absolutely. So TRIAD stands for the Realistic Interpretation of Advanced Directives. And it, it essentially stemmed from research that started, I don't know, back in 2001 or so. You know, it's funny. My own personal experiences kind of like really shaped what, what happened here. I, I almost didn't treat a 50-some-year-old lady who was in VTAC because a nurse was screaming at me, no, don't shock her. She has a living will. You know, and I was lucky at the time. There was a cardiologist there. He threw me aside into the walls, took our old-fashioned paddle, shocked her. She woke up got streptokinase at the time and went home. You know, based off of that, and then in my own residency training, when I was a senior resident, it was like my last shift as, a, as an emergency medicine resident. You know, I took care of a 60-some-year-old guy who had end-stage prostate cancer who came in septic and had a living will. And I said, well, I'm not going to screw up this time. I, I treated the crap out of him. I stuck him on the vent, stuck a line in his groin and everything just to find out that he was an end-stage hospice patient. You know, and his wife just couldn't handle him. And that goes to the point of, you know, what you say, well, these people called the ER. You know, that lady called the ER or called 911 because she couldn't take care of him anymore as he was dying. You know, so I wrote a book way back then. I, you know, it was called Understanding Your Living Will. I really don't promote it because essentially it's paper. It's, it's back in 2006. But when I wrote it, people said, hey, you have no research. So that's when I decided to go out and figure out how to research this and created the series of studies called the triad, which I'm happy to say we, we literally have 12 studies that have either been in pilot or in print in you know, peer-reviewed journals that emergency department physicians can use to justify their decision-making process. Hmm. It shows exactly how we think. It shows exactly how primary care physicians think and, and how we all misinterpret documents. You know, but the thing that we're always subjected to is that retrospective scope, right? The Monday morning quarterbacking. And I guarantee that's what happened in one of these cases that are on my desk right now is that someone told this family, hey, they should have never put him on the vet. You know, and it's that damn ER, they put him on a vent, that ER doctor who put him on a vent. We need to sue that guy or that girl. And and I, can, I I'm, I'm telling you exactly that that's what happened in this particular situation. Um. Have you seen any cases where there are dollars changing hands? Yes. So there's actually verdicts, but the majority of these actually come to a close without a verdict. You know, they come to settlements and, you know, they're, they're not small settlements. I mean, a bed sore case will get a, a malpractice attorney, you know, three, four hundred thousand dollars, potentially even more. These cases are going to generate more. And believe me, if they weren't making money on them, they wouldn't take them. Right, exactly. That's right. If there if there wasn't money, they wouldn't take them. But I, I mean, this has to be geared to some particular location or part of the country. I can't see a case like this going forward in Wyoming. Uh, you know, they understand in Wyoming that you know they're like cattle. I mean, they they die. I, I mean, <laughs> bad, bad stuff happens. And, uh, you know, at some point in time, you can't take the emergency doctor and, and get him to think outside what is the kind of usual box we work in. You know, we've tried to resuscitate him. Uh, it didn't happen. Or grandpa comes in, he's got, he's, uh, 
uh, got a do not resuscitate order. I've had family members come up to me and say, don't do anything stupid here. We're just waiting for him to die. And, and you know what? There's some honesty to that. Fred, do you have any uh, suggestions for physicians to kind of um, help them in this uh, often um, chaotic period of time when people come in and their lives are uh, right on the line and it's a yes, no go uh, decision? Yeah. So in triad six and seven, we published what's called a patient safety checklist. We called it a resuscitation pause back then. But man, I can't believe how that ignited some people in the palliative world to say, oh, we can't say that we're pausing on your care. It's not the message we want to provide. You know, but we created a checklist back then. It was just a simple A, B, C, D, E, no different than we do in our trauma protocols, right? You know, as far as airway breathing circulation. So, you know, we, we published that checklist and it's simple. You, you simply ask the patient or agent what their intentions are, their living will, their pulse document, or if they have a video or some video-based program that, that they're now using because technology can improve. You know, the B in there is really for us to be clear and, and communicate what we think, you know, as far as if this is, you know, an end-of-life condition or if it's just a critical illness, which really comes around C, too, that communication point. We got to talk. Like, we, we really just kind of move on because we're so pressured to see the next patient and so on. But we got to kind of sit and talk with those patients or their agents and really kind of go into what we call D or designing the care plan. You know, sometimes we just need to tell them, hey, look, we should probably put mom or dad on a ventilator for 48, 72 hours and see what happens. Other times we may want to make the recommendation to say, hey, this is not going to end well. You know, more than likely we should talk about explaining hospice and palliative care, which is really the E components of that checklist. And I, I can do that in 15 seconds when I'm taking care of a patient. You know, in, as I'm checking the ABCs, the, you know, airway, breathing, circulation, I could do that same thing. And that's what I really think emergency physicians need to do. They got to start really checking and verifying what information exists and start talking and making sure that they're doing right. Because there's a big contingent of physicians out there in a different world that we practice in that think we need to ask permissions before we save their life or ask patients before we save their life. And personally, I think that's ludicrous, but they're they're changing the mindset out there. You know, well, there's I, see, the, the expectation, I guess that's the next E. Uh, I've always found that discovering what the family was expecting to happen, yep. what they thought was going to happen, and discovering their expectations, because you have to either go along with them or help them understand this isn't going to end well, no matter how we do it. But the the expectation question is, to me, always the toughest one. So you mentioned as far as what, what we should or should not do. So emergency physicians, first and foremost, need to know that the patient trumps any document. They trump right. any document, you know, any video, any document, any this, any that. The patient trumps. They trump their agent, you know, that they appoint. Um, and they also need to know that really should not be having these kind of conversations with patients that have just been medicated or don't have the right cognition to be able to have that kind of conversation. And you'd be surprised how many ask a patient who's bacteremic or confused how they want treated if they go into cardiac arrest and the patient might say no. And then all of a sudden a DNR order is written, you know, and, you know, the, the other point 
physicians or our, our physicians, emergency physicians need to do is make sure that they're actually talking to an agent if they're supposed to talk to the agent rather than the patient. Because there's time and time and again, in this case that I'm mentioning again, you know, this one will most likely be an issue because they spoke with the family who was not the appointed agent to make decisions. And that family wasn't really, you know, fully aware of the conversations that the patient had with his son as far as if he were to get to that situation. Right. Right. I can see that. Uh, and it's always six or eight family members. And there's three people on the phone from Cleveland, somebody from here, somebody from there. Uh, they've got a doctor in the family who's in Oklahoma. I mean, I've literally had four phone calls going at the same time with with some of these things. And uh, all you can wish for is that they talked about this, you know, the the week before grandma actually arrested. Fred, the uh, fallback position usually is um, to err on the side of providing care. And I think most physicians are going to do that. we often thought, well, that's the case, and we were wrong. Then, you know, they can turn the ventilator off on the floor after there's been some chance to kind of clear this up and make sure everybody wants to do what um, they uh, want to do. I take it that that's really not not a, g- a good approach anymore. I, I can tell you that the best thing we can do is really document our discussions in decision-making process. In the end, it's going to be whoever prevails in court with a better presentation and story, right? You know, so really, if you document nothing, you're going to be hosed. You know, if if you have a good documentation path as far as what your medical decision making was, what you looked at in the form, again, you know, most of the time, if a patient has a living will, it's not even a it's not even a triggered document, right? It's just a valid piece of paper that they sign. You know, it has to be triggered. You know, meaning the patient can't speak for themselves or they enter a terminal condition or persistent vegetative state. So the, the more they document their decision making process and those buzzwords, the better it will be for them when these cases come up. Because, again, you know, we're being challenged now by a group out there that seems to think that we need to ask for permissions first. And that thought process of basically treating people and figuring it out later it's it's coming. It's now starting to come to bite us. It would seem it would seem that um, there's the necessity for a little continuing medical education here in this um, endeavor, uh, so that in fact you know the terminology, you know the um, who has the uh, authority versus who doesn't have the authority, and um, I can see. You know, with 40,000 emergency physicians in the country, a lot of physicians, if not majority, not really being up to speed on this. Yeah, that's exactly. It's a great point. But I can tell you that we've studied education in just about every one of the triad studies. And it really has either had no effect or a nominal effect, you know, and and, and maybe maybe it's because the education is wrong. You you know, maybe maybe there's something wrong with the education itself that that we're putting out. I mean, I, I can tell you, I've, I've done CMEs and lectured and so on. I can't tell you how many hundreds of thousands, I guess, the audience would be if you accumulated them all. And even here at my hospital, we still have those kind of issues, you know, as far as people misunderstanding documents and orders. And I oversee the program. 
Well, maybe so, there's a, a different sort of motivation. Before the motivation was to do the right thing for the patient. Now the motivation may be if you don't do the right thing, you're going to go through this horrible process that we've been talking about for the last 15 years about going through a, a lawsuit, depositions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, that may up the ante because it gets it really personal now. Uh, it's not just a decision that's going to maybe hurt uh, a patient or a family. It's a decision that may hurt you. So maybe you'll be more motivated to uh, get up to speed on this. Uh, I'm going to ask you if there's any kind of reference that you know that physicians may be able to access, and we can put it in the show notes with regards to here's the nitty gritty and here's what we think you ought to know and and um, in in a very finite uh, manner. Um, yeah, so I mean, for the down and dirty type stuff, like ASHRAM, the American Society of Hospital Risk Managers, we did a presentation for one time, and that was a, to me, it was a great presentation. It had the nuts and bolts that emergency department physicians really needed to know, and and essentially, even, even through some things with Medscape, we've published some things on Medscape as far as short interviews that are really down and dirty with Robert Glatter, who's an emergency medicine physician himself. And, and, and he looked at it and he goes, oh, my God, he goes, this is so perverse. This is everywhere. And it's true. I mean, these concerns now really become everywhere. And when you think about it, the primary driver here is money. You know, it's money as far as the insurance companies not wanting to keep a patient alive, family members not want to, wanting to pay for post-acute care that, you know, depleting the entire estate that they were about to inherit and so on. So mm -hmm. it's... Um, it's, it's different, but I, I personally think technology is where it's going to need to come. You know, I remember sitting down, and this is how we designed Triad 8. I was sitting down with my son at the time, and we were watching Superman. And you, you remember when Superman essentially, you know, most people probably don't even remember who Superman is, the real movies or so on. So I could talk with you guys, and we'll all understand. Clark yeah. Kent. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it, and by the way, Superman will always be George Reeves, right, Rick? From right? when yep. you and I were kids. Yeah. <laughs> so, but if you remember when he gave up his powers to marry Lois Lane, right. right? And then had to go figure out how to get his powers back and went back to his crystal cave or whatever that was and found a crystal and you know, his parents came and talked to him. I mean, when I sat there and watched that one day, I'm with him, and then we designed a triad eight study and figured out how to bring video right back into the clinical scenario within seconds, right? And that, to me, is a safeguard, you know? And we all remember pain pumps, right? You know, and how when we first started using IV pain pumps for narcotics and so on, all these people were overdosing, you know, because they sit there and keep pushing the button. They keep pushing the button to get their next dose of pain medication because they were hurting. And then we figured out guardrails. So no matter how many times you push a button, you're only going to get a certain number amount of medication over a certain period of time. And I think the safeguard is how to bring some voice of the patient, whether it's audio, video, both, into the clinical scenario so that we clarify what the patient's intentions are of those forms. Because those forms are, are quite frankly, are just a disaster. It, you know, it's, it, it's very funny that we carry on this discussion in the United States. Uh, I spent time teaching in uh, several European countries and in, in several societies over there, emergency medicine societies. These are never 
issues to the Europeans. They, 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 they kind of look at you strangely when you bring up these cases. Over in Europe, they think that the death rate is actually 100%. Everybody is going to die. And, and, and they, don't, they don't do a lot of the crazy stuff that we do at the end of life. So it's actually funny. In England, there's a lot of issues surrounding do not resuscitate orders. And inappropriate do not resuscitate orders, undisclosed do not resuscitate orders, care issues related to do not resuscitate orders. I mean, it's, it's even gotten to the point where they have some, like what we would call a class action suit here against a company, there's a class action suit against, what do they call it, the Royal, Royal College of Medicine there, right. you know, over this specific issue. Well, I tell so you. So what, what should we tell our, 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 our juniors, our young docs at this point in time? Well, I so, think before we get into that, number one, uh, Fred uh, made, made us aware that, uh, that this is a becoming a, a real issue real cases, real dollars. And number two, that there are some educational kinds of uh, things that are short and to the point, which we can help disseminate. If you kind of give me some links and the, and the yep. like, and we'll put them in the show notes. Yep. But, but it's clear that um, the tide is turning and the idea of doing the best thing that you think was appropriate at the time may not necessarily um, get you off the hook here. You know, you realize, Fred, you're not making us happy guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, from, Your what I remember, though, from what I remember, though, you guys aren't practicing clinically anymore. I still am. And, and a lot of my colleagues are so that, you know, that's the hope here that we get them aware that, you know, people are actively looking to hurt us in a way here. And yes. we don't even know it's about to happen. You know, yeah. so. That's the goal here, that we inform all the emergency department physicians across this country that, you know, that there are some people out there that are pushing things in a direction that is contrary to how we were trained. And, yeah. and that we've got to start taking notice to either advocate for ourselves or fall in line with whatever that decision making is. You know, uh, yeah, Rick goes back a long way. Rick, you took care of Lincoln, didn't you? <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that didn't turn out well. But, no, no, but, no. It did not turn out well. But I, I, I think this really is a shift in understanding. And uh, some of us old guys, are go it's going to be tough bringing people along. I, I, again, I used to always go out, try and find the family member, figure out the dynamics of the family, who's in charge, who's making the decisions, who's going to be upset spend time, a little time with them, and then go back in and see the patient and then come out and, and give well, you, them the bad news. You got lucky, man, because I think that there's a lot of people, there are a lot of people who die in the emergency department, whether they be hospice patients or not. And um, it would seem that it would be to our advantage to, uh, to understand uh, where these trends are going. I take it, Fred, do you think there's some kind of a, a video presentation would be the best way for physicians to learn about this rather than um, books, papers, and that kind of thing? You mean as far as in CME? Yeah, yes. I, would, I think video yeah. is probably the best. You know, it, 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 it just always reinforces. And the studies even show that, you know, video just has that ability between audio, visual, and if people review later, yeah. that, that they'll typically retain more. 
do you have a video uh, uh, that we can, you know, get out to our people? Um, I th there's a video that we put together as far as a CME program that we put together for the center to transform. What is it? The center to CTAC, the center to transform advanced care planning. And essentially, I think that would be an ideal thing to put out to our colleagues. It, it has, th you know, it has the bar association speaking. It has ethics speaking. It has me speaking from a clinical perspective. And we don't just speak about the issues. We talk about the safety issues, but also try and pose out some solutions that systems can now look to. Because I, I want people to think about something. We're all captains of the ship, right? It doesn't matter if you have a piece of paper. It doesn't matter if it's a post. It doesn't matter if it's a living will. It doesn't matter if it's a video. Essentially, we, the, the physician is going to be the one held accountable to this. And if, if you look at something that's garbage and you make a bad decision, guess what? You're going to be in trouble. Well, on that uplifting note, I appreciate your alerting us to this because uh, honestly, we were totally clueless that this is that uh, this is an issue at all. But it sounds like uh, it's something we should be um, alerting our colleagues to. So, Fred, Absolutely. if you, if you uh, would send me some uh, links or the like, and we'll stick them into our show notes for the uh, people who are going to be reading over those, and uh, I think that would probably help a lot. I'd be happy Otherwise, to. Greg, do you have any comments, questions, or disagreements here? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, what he's talking about is still an uncomfortable situation for people who are on the scene who have to make a decision. The problem with the law is it always looks in retrospect at what's going on. They weren't there at that moment when real decisions were being made, which makes it very, very difficult. So I, I, I can't decide whether I want to go and hang myself or take small cyanide tablets. But <laughs> it, all, all I can all I can tell you is um it's the world is changing. It's a little different than it was, and uh, it doesn't always change for the better. Well, you can actually see where there are some monetary issues where if if there is a wrongful prolongation of life that requires a lot of subsequent care and nobody has the courage to discontinue care uh, subsequently, uh, that could that could get uh, kind of messy in terms of, yeah. Well, by the way, the prolongation of care, the person who really suffers in this may be the insurance company. And what I'm what I'm thinking is a doctor sued by the insurance, the ho their hospitalization, that sort of thing, because you've now raised the cost of the health care for that patient. Although, you know, I would think that most of these people are going to be on Medicare. And uh, so... Unless you have a supplement, I think that you're the. It would be hard to think of a big, big, big charges coming up. But, but who knows? There's maybe exceptions. Fred, yeah. thanks for alerting us to this. And we um, appreciate it. Uh, appreciate your leadership in this. Obviously, you've been involved in, in uh, this for a while. You set, you send us the links. We'll put up the links. I think that will be the best we can do. But we, I think we've gotten the word out now, and. So thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. And thank you both. And you know, for everybody listening, good luck. And just make sure you document appropriately. Got you. Thank you much. Thank you. 
Hey, Greg, before we c- continue on this, the uh, issue this month, I wanted to pick up a little bit more about the wrongful life lawsuits that Dr. Mirachi was talking about. Um, I uh, found out, actually, that he is, in fact, a true expert on this topic. He started publishing in 2007 on uh, this topic, and he's the principal investigator of at least seven papers largely internet studies on how good are we at interpreting these documents. And he says we don't do very well. No, no, I, I think that uh, there, there are two reasons for that. The first one is when someone comes in to see us in the emergency department, it's almost always in a code type situation. So we're not good at casually looking through paperwork at that moment in time, Rick. And and as you will readily admit, the most common thing we do early on is control the airway, get them intubated, have somebody keep pounding on the chest, and then we're gonna go ahead and look at the paperwork. And, And I've been on many panels dealing with this subject. The first thing is that everyone points out is if you don't want the fire department, the rescue squad, this and that, is to bring people to the emergency department, don't call them. <laughs> the best deaths are when somebody has properly conveyed to their family, when I die, I'm dead. I'm happy with that. I'm cool with that. Well, you know, don't do it in the middle of a code in the emergency department. I brought that up to my wife yesterday because uh, it was like, well, Diane, how do you deal with these kinds of things uh, where there's kind of these gray zones potentially? And she said, oddly enough, don't call the ambulance. Right, exactly. <laughs> that, that was her professional $550 an hour uh, advice. Don't right. call it, it, Yes, people remember that uh, that Rick's wife uh, is an attorney who deals with uh, wills, trusts and estates. And uh, she's right. The last thing you want is ambiguity about what you're supposed to do. You know, we can be in emergency medicine. We can be wrong. We just can't be in doubt because halfway through, what are you going to do? Um, I I would point out that uh, when we use the term wrongful life in my medical legal career, I've only seen one other situation where it wasn't at the end of life. I actually knew of an emergency doctor who was going to be sued uh, for not prescribing a birth control pill uh, and some woman got pregnant and uh, she wanted to sue him for wrongful life. We're not talking about that, folks. We're talking about, and by the way, birth control pills all have a disclaimer in them that, that they ain't 100%. Uh, but the, the bottom line here is we're talking about end-of-life stuff. And if you and the family and your spouse or whoever it is haven't worked these things out, don't ask the emergency department to solve your problem because it can't solve your problem. We're like attack dogs. If if you throw us a body and you're and somebody's pumping on it, we tend to act as opposed to not act. 
And so we, we've got to be very clear why you called, what did you expect to have happen, what did you want done? And the worst thing you can do is being in the middle of a family who doesn't know what they want done. Well, that's the whole point, that it, it is unclear often what people uh, want done. And uh, he makes the point that we don't seem to be able to fix this. Uh, our, we don't have necessarily much in the way of instructions on how to deal with this uh, kind of thing. And even if we did, he based, his, his research shows that we're atrocious at uh, understanding what these documents really want. So I have to tell you, there is a little potential conflict here as a, as a mechanism for patients telling you what they want. He's created a product called Mideo, M-I-D-E-O, where in fact you the patient and talks into the video, there's a camera recording and there's, and they're walked through exactly what they would like done or not done in this uh, process. And then you get this wallet card. It's got the patient's picture on it. And there's this QR code, Greg, you and I don't know what QR codes are, but right. Yeah, some right. people know how to use these things. And you, you're telling you, you, you your telephone takes a picture of this QR code, and the next thing you know, in the telephone, this person is talking to you about what they would like. So this is um, an attempt to kind of deal with this issue. He gave us lots of links, when, and we'll put a bunch of them <clears throat> into, the, um, into the show notes. But he did a, uh, he connected us to uh, Thaddeus Pope, who is a um, law professor and ethicist at the University of Minnesota who has collected, he has on his website about 50 cases. Yes. Um, and four of them are from 2020. And so I thought it would be, kind of be interesting if we took and just looked at one of these. This is a real case. And, you know, I don't know whether these cases are, are settled or not, but the first one, Greg, you're going to go through this case for, uh, for us at the Jersey City Medical Center. Yeah, and, and, and Rick, I, as we get into this, we're going to reiterate the best thing you can do as an emergency doc is when you talk to pa patients, talk to family docs, talk to internists, is to get things decided up front. Because there's nothing worse than hearing a siren and an ambulance come in and trying to work through these decisions. Well, it's, it's a pain in the butt. Well, you it's, know, Greg, it's unfair. We, yeah. we used to take the position, well, we'll intubate them and let them settle this up on the floor and let right. them pull out the pl uh, plug up there. Uh, it's the better uh, part of Valor to uh, intubate than, than not. And these people are suggesting that um, many times these patients are intubated. They never get extubated. Nobody has the, you know, the willingness to uh, shut the ventilator off. And so uh, this case is, is an emergency physician case. So why don't you kind of go through some of what transpired in here and how they tr tried to claim that ER doctor was like a, a, a horrible doctor. Yeah, is this the uh, Kaleo versus uh, Jersey City Medical Center? Yes, yes. sir. Uh, now, uh, th this is one where the patient was transferred from a nursing home for uh, because of respiratory distress. Problem number one, if they're in a nursing home, has somebody made a decision well, that you're gonna go all out? 
I mean, this is the question here, if this is going to go on. At the hospital, the EP physician uh, and his team, of course, did was which, uh, what those people do, which is they try to resuscitate a patient. And according to the patient's attorney, this was not intended to be done. Well, what did they expect was going to happen when you send somebody by EMS to a from a nursing home to an emergency department because of shortness of breath? I don't know what they thought was going to happen. The plaintiff's attorney basically said this is a wrongful uh, action uh, because what he should have been, I guess, should have been allowed to do is just to die. Um, and, and this is, this is one of those situations that every emergency department finds themselves in. Now the patient lives, uh, for another four or five days, something Actually, like was, that. It was nine days that this person N- nine days. lived and these people assert, <clears throat> assert that, that this was wrongful life. Well, you know, the, the problem is. Here, there's a mistake made along the way everywhere, because when you're sitting in the emergency department, Rick, you know you tend to err on the side of action as opposed to inaction. You tend to get sued for inactivity as opposed to activity, and that really is the problem. How is the emergency department supposed to know these things? Well, actually... yeah. You know, this person had a, a DNR bracelet on. Right. He had at the nursing home uh, full documentation that there was to be no resuscitative efforts made. There was also at the, at the hospital he was transferred to, he already had on file um, that he wasn't supposed to resusc- be resuscitated. So that the lawyers claim, geez, we did everything we could to tell you about this. And, I, you know, many hospitals, they have, when you come in, they already have it flagged whether you're a DNR or not, or, or um, there's, a, there's a spot that makes it very, supposedly very clear in the medical record. Now, I yeah. agree that, you know, uh, if there is some urgency call here. In, emergency personnel. Well, Thank listen, you. Chief, have a nice the emergency day. physician is getting sued in this case. Well, I know that. And it, he, these are the things they're claiming, tortuous assault and battery. By the way, we should go over this one more time. Assault is the threat. The battery is the unauthorized touching. So if I put my fist up and bring it close to your face, that's that's assault. If I hit your face, that's a battery. But they claim that what they did was tortuous um, assault and battery. Unlawful assault um, and then they claimed ordinary negligence, because anybody should have known they wanted to die, gross negligence. I mean, let's just look at a few of these things that are in the summons and complaint. They said this was uh, intentional infliction of pain and suffering. Come on, give me a break here. And, and, You know, we can go down the list of all the claims in this thing. The bottom line is, why did somebody at the nursing home even call an ambulance? I don't know why. But 
once it starts, how do you then in the emergency department decide to stop it, Rick? That's well, the I question. I think the idea is um, there's a problem here. This problem has not been resolved by post documents or or this document or that document. Right. And um, and the idea of being sued for wrongful life is real. There's a ne- the next case is a, is a is a quickie. This is an elderly patient who came in. This is this is actually these cases actually have names like Albrighton versus Regency well, these, Hospital. Well, these are filed cases, Rick. <laughs> yeah, these are real McCoy. This is also a 2020 case. Yeah. Now, it's not an emergency medicine case, but it, it it's a great example of how bad this thing can can become. So. Yeah. It, elderly patient with a large parenchymal uh, brain bleed who was in terminal condition, quote unquote, transferred to a unit from a university hospital where he had, they had been receiving care to a, another hospital where they were probably going to be more in a holding action there. The well, I think this the re- is the point. They were moved from the higher level of care uh, institution. They were sent to die. And, and because obviously if the university hospital had thought they needed that kind of expensive high level care, they would have kept them, but they basically move the patient. When I hear this case, Rick, this is the ultimate in, in the, the, the cool hand Luke phrase. What we have here is a failure to communicate. That is, you would, you it's would kind think of amazing. somebody would have called and said, we're sending you a patient to be, you know, d- till they take their last breath. Don't do anything stupid. Don't do anything crazy. And I, I think that when you read this case, you're thinking, wait a minute. The university hospital sent them to someplace else to die. And, and I don't know why they had to do that. You, the last time I checked, you can die just fine in a university hospital. It may be more expensive to die. Well, it's more expensive per death. But I mean, I was personally responsible for plenty of people being dead at the Thank university. You very much. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's no need to, to share that with this doctor. Yes, exactly. And in any case, when this person got to this other hospital, the physician in charge made this person a full code. Yes. Uh, three days later, the staff at the hospital was presented with the living will and durable power of attorney telling who was in charge of this case and what they Uh, wanted. Stop, Rick. Two more. Uh, Nobody knew what anybody else was doing, failure to communicate. They they transferred him from a, a university hospital to a community hospital and somebody didn't tell him that they were a no code. The guy made him a code and it took three days for someone to get in there with the paperwork that said, no, we don't want anything. I mean, well, it's just bizarre. And to make it worse, after the paperwork arrived, it, it landed in the patient's chart two days later. Right. Eight days after the admission, the patient's condition deteriorated, surprisingly, and the patient was coded and intubated. And it was asserted that the treatment rendered the patient was without her consent. Two days later, a hospital administrator actually apologized to the uh, family saying, we, yes, we have the power of attorney and uh, we didn't really activate it quickly enough. And we're very, very sorry uh, for putting the patient on life support. Despite that, the day after 
the physician put the patient on a BiPAP and the patient passed away five days after that. Yeah, yeah. So it, it basically it said, listen, this patient suffered all of this time against their will. You made you put the family through this against their will. The family's religion was such that they were very uncomfortable. It was against the religion for them to pull the plug, which they ultimately did. The medical cost for this patient was $35,000 over and above what it should have been, and that any care was considered to be, other than comfort care, was considered to be um, an assault and battery uh, against this patient. Yeah, I wouldn't... Uh... I, I don't want us to skip over any parts of this case because it's happening every single day in every hospital in America. This is Alberton versus Regency Hospital is the case. You can look it up. The real, the real basis of this case is somebody talk to somebody about why you're in the hospital, what it's for, what do we want done did somebody talk to the family? Did somebody do anything? But I can see why a family would be upset about this, Rick. If you were sent and they said, "Look, they're not going to live. We're sending you home from the. They're sending you to a lower standard of care here. They'll be dead in a day. All that kind of stuff." And that'd been worked out. If all this crap went on for another five or six or seven days, I can understand why they would be angry. Um, and you have to stop people in hospitals from doing things. They have the best of intentions. I did that with the death of my own father, where I the the intern said to me, well, he and I was on the staff, he said, Dr. Henry, uh, we got to do this. We got to do that. I, uh, his vital signs are bad. I said, write an order, young man, that says no more vital signs because they're upsetting you. He's going to be dead in a day or two. And I said, you're getting very upset about his vital signs. It, literally, he was having the nurse come in every hour to take the blood pressure and the pulse. And I said, no, no, don't take it until there is no pulse. And then you can take it all you want. Uh, but you do have to convey what your interests are to the medical staff because they don't, they're not trained that way, Rick. We're not trained that way. Well, in any case, I think we should move on. But um, Fred is the expert on this thing. You get yourself in any kind of trouble with related to uh, wrongful life. Um, this uh, Fred's been studying this and working on this for 15 yeah. years. Yeah. And um, he's been advising a lot of states. Um, the states are not uniform in their laws on this, uh, oh, no. on this problem. Not at all. It's, it's like COVID. Uh, there's, there is no uniformity and, and, uh, some places have basically exonerated the medical staff once you, once they, the, correct paperwork is, is online. Other places have not. You should be aware of what's going on in your own state, unfortunately. Okay, uh, Greg, let's move on to a couple of emails here. This is actually a two-parter. Um, yep. The first part of this, uh, letters of recommendation and credentialing often ask if the involved physician has ever been in subject to peer review or quality review. That's the assertion. That that's the beginning. The question, does this conflict with the uh, recommendation that we submit our own cases to peer review? Uh, 
is it not an unintended consequence of doing the right thing that you may turn yourself in as, uh, as a matter of sorts and get yourself into some kind of a, a file that then gets involved in credentialing and uh, uh, doesn't look good for you? And my response to that was, are you serious? Would you turn yourself in for a case that was like a near miss for you to the peer review process? Uh, no, thank you very much. First of all, there's there's two things that can happen in these cases. One of them is the medicine. You made a mistake because you didn't know the medicine or you kind of misinterpreted it. And, and when that happens, you go back and read about uh, that subject and you get a bone up on it. And the other pro process that can happen is some some mechanical issue happened in the emergency department. There was a failure co of communication. There was, there was uh, a, a, some process that uh, didn't work right. Well, if that's the case, fine. You go to the medical director of the emergency department and the nurse manager and say, listen, we have a, what, we have a systematic process that is a problem. Can we fix it? The, taking this stuff to the peer review process, I think, is turning yourself in for cases that were a problem, I think that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Well, having run uh, peer review through a department for uh, 20 years, let me tell you that whenever I got a letter like this requesting this sort of thing, we would say Dr. So-and-so was a part of the department's QA process. Um, mm -hmm. Nothing abnormal was produced. Uh, and unless it was very bizarre or unusual, uh, there would be nothing in those records which would indicate that. Uh, you, you've got to be very careful where, where you've got these things planted. Well, I, don't some, think, I don't even think you can say, Dr. So-and-so, nothing was produced. Um, that, I thought there's found, the sanctity right. of the peer review process and that, in fact, it doesn't get leaked out. But they're suggesting that um, it, uh, it's reasonable for you to uh, be asked. And I suggest, first of all, that, that that may not be the case, number one. And secondly, the question here is, should doctors turn in their own cases for peer review? And my answer is, you have to have your head examined to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you can get the problem resolved outside of the process by talking to the medical director, nurse manager, or you can read up on the process so that you don't make a clinical mistake in the future. Yeah, I would I would remind everyone that this is very state specific. And you ought to know what the state of Michigan, the state of California uh, may require you to do with that information. And it is not uniform across the country, I promise you that. And you, you should know exactly what they re require you to turn in. Also, you should know if you have to go through processes in your hospital to relieve a doctor of his uh, clinical privileges, that sort of thing, in, in most states, that may be available um, should it be related to a medical malpractice action. So, again, be careful what you put in these things and how, and how you handle them, and they've got to follow the state-specific guidelines. Well, if your um, privileges are <clears throat> modified, restricted in any way for a month or, or longer, uh, that goes into the National Practitioner Data Bank. 
Right. Uh, the second part of this question uh, uh, to uh, email was, Greg, is there a HIPAA violation if a person comes to you who has um, they're on medical therapy for their drug addiction and um, they come to you and they're under the influence of some other recreational drug. And this person wants to know whether it's okay to report them to their medical provider, given the fact that they uh, are uh, seeming to be abusing the system and are, are still involved with recreational drugs. Yeah, I, I, this, this is a very uh, difficult question because what if something goes ahead, there's a car accident, there's a this, there's a that, are you now responsible? Are you part of this situation? Uh, be, be very careful. Um, if you're asked uh, as a part of a larger picture of a, of a person, um, their, their various medical problems, hey, you do have an obligation to the public at large to be honest. Uh, I wouldn't go volunteering uh, well, I think he also smokes marijuana, too, uh, unless it's a part of his current medical problem. But um, you do have you do have obligations to the larger society. Here. Well, I you know, in this question. The uh, person is already on Suboxone for an opiate related um, problem disorder, and they come in under the influence of marijuana. <clears throat> Or the like, and um, my answer is really, I think, very straightforward. You cannot tell the uh, practitioner who's giving the person the medical uh, therapy for uh, drug addiction, the, the Suboxone, you can't tell them about this person also being on marijuana unless you have the patient's permission to do so. Exactly. I mean, and they come in on, you know, people who come in on under the influence of alcohol, you don't report them to their primary care doctor. You know, in, in I mean, general, no. And, and, and let me just say, you put the, the question correctly, which is um, you're going to let them know, you're going to talk to them about it because it may be a part of their overall therapy. You may say, I need to talk to your doc about this. What do you think? Uh, you're right. You wouldn't, in most cases, pick up the phone and talk to somebody, but uh, if it's part of the larger treatment program and the the patient wants to still be involved, you may want to talk to their their other doctor, but getting their permission would be a wise thing. Well, I think it I think it would be required to get the permission to tell, tell yeah. you the truth. Yeah. Um, Greg, we have a topic here that looks like it will take a fair amount of time and uh, I don't know that we really have a ton of time to go into it, but I, but I think it's worth doing, but in a more abbreviated way than will appear in the show notes. The show notes on this are really pretty uh, comprehensive, but we're going to do a, an abbreviated version. This is from uh, Kenny Tots, the our yeah. physician JD uh, colleague who's been on the show in the past before. Many he times. Turned us on to an article in the Journal of Healthcare Risk Management. The volume 40, number two, I have no idea why they can't put the freaking month <laughs> on the thing. You know, I have no idea what number two is. Right. Uh, this is but this was a 2020 article that talked about the idea of the crisis standard of care. 
And um, the reason I bring this up is we're recording this on uh, November 18th. This is the December issue recording November 18th. This, this is surprisingly early for us. Yeah. <laughs> but everything in the news right now is with the cases uh, of COVID are going through the roof. Every state is having more cases. And there is this concern that we are now going to overrun our hospitals with, and uh, they won't have the capacity that uh, we they, they need and that, in fact, there may be the, the um, necessity to, to determine who gets the ventilator, this person or that person, because we only have one, and right. how are we going to do it? So this talks about the crisis standard of care, and this is a long article that gets, goes through this. And I think if you're interested in getting the nitty-gritty, I would uh, take a look at the Journal of Health care risk management, and you can look through the notes. But the whole point of this is that states now are releasing what they call this crisis standard of care. And in the state of Arizona, as a matter of fact, there's a 141-page document suggesting and making you aware of uh, how this needs to go and your obligation to be fair and transparent uh, regarding how these decisions are made so that one hospital is not making them differently from another hospital and that you know, in fact, that you cannot arbitrarily say patients over the age of 70 do not get a ventilator, those kinds of things. You can't say it arbitrarily, but what you can say is that we're at a state right now where, the, where we either transfer patients to another institution or if, if we can't do that, this is the system we're going to use. And what they're basically saying is you need to have a program, um, not just in the emergency department, but in the hospital-wide as to how you're going to allocate resources. What they don't want is a, an arbitrary and capricious way of saying you live, you die, you and and you can't just say you old, uh, because there are plenty of pretty healthy eighty-year-olds uh, who would like to stay alive. Thank you very much. Uh, and so you have to have some system in place to distribute resources. Um, now. We've gone through this a bunch of times. We went through the first phase of COVID when this happened. Uh, we were going like crazy to build. Uh, in fact, here in the Detroit area, we converted some of the auto plants to making ventilators so that we had enough of them available. I mean, the, there are systems available, and I think most hospitals have some method, they need to have something uh, to protect and defend themselves from lawsuits uh, should there be a problem in distribution of resources. Well, I think the uh, bottom line here is that uh, hospitals and the state has the obligation to, to distribute um, these documents because this is uh, moving to, instead of a patient-based standard of care, we're talking about a societal-based yes, standard of care exactly. in terms of the allocation of resources that are that are clearly limited. Now, we're not there yet, but the fact of the matter is is that, frankly, we could get there. And so you're, you need to be aware of what your state's uh, process is. Your hospitals have to be very organized in this manner. They have to have triage officers who clearly know that the how these rules are to be uh, um 
implemented, that the um, allocation of care and resources is done in an objective and evenly applied, that it's, it's uh, th th there's a whole list of things that will be in the show notes that are required of these documents. And the fact of the matter is, is that you, if you want to be um, uh, helped, if you want to help protect yourself regarding litigation, when things go nasty in this setting of limited resources, you got to be following these um, these uh, these documents, these these processes. As we record today, uh, we are probably six to eight weeks, and uh, Michigan is a, a major center for the manufacture of drugs. Uh, and and uh, we're about six to eight weeks from some of the first mass shippings of of, of uh, corona uh, virus uh, medications. And I think that what we're going to see at some point in time is a fight over that distribution. Who gets the shot? Who gets the inoculation? Who gets these sort of thing? Because, by the way, it isn't one shot. All of them require several to give you f full immunity. Who's going to get it? Where's the lines? And what I am noticing already on the local television stations is a discussion of who gets who gets in line first. It's going to be first responders, police, fire, public safety, uh, medical personnel, and then it's going to jump to the nursing homes. But uh, all of this discussion, the discussion of the distribution is a social political discussion, not a medical discussion. Um, crisis standard of care, take a look at it uh, and be aware of what's uh, going to be happening at your hospital. Because if you're in the front line, you, be ma you may be uh, forced to make some of these decisions. We've never made these decisions ever in our lives. And so this is clearly uncharted territory. Well, this and is true triage. This, this is a, a form of societal triage as to who gets what. What you, what you want to make sure is that all of a sudden there's, a, there's no diversion of the medications to uh, one set of hospitals or another. Is it going to go to downtown Detroit? Is it going to go to our uh, richer suburbs? All those sorts of things are going to come up. And if you don't think that wouldn't be a huge political question, I mean, we're not talking about a few patients here and there. We're talking about a country of 300 and almost 30 million people we're going to have to have two shots. Do the math on that. Um, there's another question as to are you going to, for again, from the societal standpoint, uh, when you've got your little card, are you going to have to show that that says I'm safe to come into your institution, to your restaurant? I had my two inoculations, that sort of thing. Or, we we don't know yet what we're going to do. Or to go to school. Does your or kid to have go to, to school. You know, show that they've been uh, immunized. Greg, I think we are running out of time for this issue. Do you have really? a wine for this month? Well, my God. I, I, I Yes, I'm going to come up with a wine. And, and a, um, it is going to be a Wenty, a California wine. Uh, and it, 
I don't think they actually, I'm not sure they put a year on them, Rick. I think it's like March, February, something like that on the bottle. But um, again, we were were involved the other day in a discussion with some enophils, and they think, uh, in this sense, I said, if you had to send somebody to the store and you only had 11 bucks or 10 bucks, they thought that the uh, California Wente, um, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, was a great buy for like 11 bucks. They said, can you spend more money? Sure. You can spend, you can buy an Opus One from California if you want, which is a hundred and some bucks a bottle. But they thought that that was a great wine for about $11 a bottle. So you're basically saying, give it a whirl. Give it a, give, give this one a, a, a try and it's okay. And Rick, I can't believe we've had uh, so little time to uh, to do all this stuff. We got a lot of stuff still backed up. Yeah, well, actually, uh, the next issue, we have tons of cases that we're going to go through and uh, a bunch of oddities about uh, the, you know, people being uh, pronounced dead who are not and the, uh, the economic consequences of that. Um, so uh, tune in next time. We'll go through a bunch of, uh, of these um, more specific little cases, not the big cases about wrongful life, which we've been spending, we spent this issue on. So thanks for listening. Bye for now. We'll talk to you in uh, January. Bye-bye.